Hey guys, what's up? This is Gabby, fearless and free, and I'm here with Weber's Way, back with another Heart to Heart episode. Today I have the honor of sitting with my friend, Michael McMahon. Michael McMahon has endured some major heat and discrimination for standing up and fighting for our bodily autonomy against these unconstitutional mandates that later on resulted him in losing his job and being terminated from a 14-year position with the LAPD. So let's go into his home and have a little heart to heart. Come on, join us. Hey guys, so we're here with Michael McMahon and we are going to get into the heart to heart combo. So this is just going to be a light, fun, easy combo. Yep. Thank you for allowing us into your humble abode. So first off, I just want to ask you to just tell us, uh, for people that may not know who you are, because you've been very busy lately, for people to get to know who Michael McMahon is. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, Mike McMahon in a nutshell. Uh, I'm a dad. I'm a partner, a co-parent. Um, I'm your neighbor. Yeah. I am a former 14-year veteran of the LAPD. Um, I was fired from my, from my position in July of this year after being uh, relieved of duty for almost the past year, actually since November 3rd of last year, I was uh, wow. uh, suspended. Um, and then I was ordered to, to turn in my, my badge and my gun on November 5th, and I had been on trial with the LAPD since December of last year. Yeah. Fighting for our Constitution, fighting for our, our First Amendment rights, yeah. fighting for our 14th Amendment. And um, yeah, I was, I was found to be guilty of refusing to follow the order of a chief with regards to the city's uh, vaccine mandate. And I was terminated from my position on July 1st. Wow, Michael. I'm, it's, so, it's so sad to hear that you are going through such such a hard time in your life because nobody ever expects to be let go from a position that I think you really took pride in. You're showing me some videos before of just what an excellent officer you were. And so first I just want to say thank you for your 14 years of service. We all, we all do. And you shouldn't have gone through that. And I don't believe it's, it's fair. And what, you know, when everything is now coming out about these, you know, vaccines and how it's harming people, they still have no regard to the people that have lost their livelihoods because of this. Mm -hmm. And um, you, you would have never expected this to, to happen to you. So let's let's take it back a little bit to when you actually take us back to when you actually wanted to be an LAPD officer. What was that like for Michael? When did you decide you wanted to be in the LAPD? Well, uh, growing up, I, I had always wanted to be a police officer. Really? Uh, I was born and raised in Boston, okay. Massachusetts. Um, I grew up on a street that had several police officers that were my neighbors at the time. Okay. And, uh, you know, kids, kids from Massachusetts, when I was growing up, you were either a cop or a robber. Really? And <laughs> Cops and robbers. Did you play that as or, a kid? Cop. Or you were a teacher. Really? You know, um, so, you know, I chose the path. Uh, you know, I stayed. I stayed on the straight my entire life, really? and um, and I decided that I wanted to be a cop. I went to school for criminal justice. Wow. I earned my bachelor's degree in um, oh. in criminal justice. That's awesome. And 
you know, I, I never let go of that dream. That's so uh, cool. A 21-year-old man who graduated college, I tried to get on uh, several departments on the East Coast. It never happened, but I maintained that drive, even though I was working in other fields. Right. Uh, you know, I was in the, the restaurant business. I ran a restaurant for... Uh, you did? Yeah. What kind of restaurant? It was an okay. Irish bar. Really? Yeah, How yeah. cool. Um, That's awesome. And so I ran that for a while, you know, never really giving up the um, the drive. Right. You know, um, and even actually before I ran the restaurant, um, it, I had, it, you know, 9-11 happened mm -hmm. and it sort of reinvigorated me like, oh, I need to go. Mm -hmm. So I, I tried to I tried to go to New York mm -hmm. and I tried to go to FDNY. Uh, and neither of those worked out. Just be, I think it was just such an influx of people coming in yeah. to the city at that time, trying to, you know, trying to serve right. after the uh, the, the horrific 9/11. Yeah. But uh, I never I never gave up. And awesome. so a cousin of mine um, was on the East Coast. He he was he was from here, and he was on the department. And he kind of put the bug in my ears. Hey man, you know we're always looking for people. And so I was like, well. I'd never thought about going that far. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, lo and behold, I, I I applied and they gave me the call and said... Uh, in L.A.? Yeah, I applied to, in L.A. Really? Applied to L.A. I flew out here. It took me a year to get on because I had to fly back and forth. Right. Um, Did you have family out in Minnesota? Like, in Boston. In Boston? Sorry, in Boston? Well, yeah, my whole family's your from whole Boston. Fa okay, yeah. your whole family was there. Um, so it's hard to leave, I'm sure. Well, you know, no. when I got the call, it, I had to... I was faced with that decision. I mean, yeah. go to where my heart belongs, right? right? I've always wanted to be a police officer or yeah. stay here and be stagnant. Right. And I was, I was not happy where I was back in Boston. Okay. So I, I, I made the most selfish decision I had ever made up to that point, And right. I said, later. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> I, you know, you, ha you have to follow your dreams exactly. wherever it takes you. Exactly. That's so you know? awesome. Um, so... It was, uh, I remember it was uh, Valentine's Day 2008. 2008, okay. And I put everything I could into the back of my car and I drove cross country in the middle of winter. And You, you drove? Yep. Oh yep. my gosh. I put as much as I could and then I had my snowboards in there. And Yeah, snowboard. Yeah. You snowboard? Let's go. I used go. to, like a fiend. <laughs> yeah, And then awesome. I had kids and they got expensive. <laughs> I know, me too. Yeah, but, I love uh, to snowboard. Anyway. Yeah, you know, I drove across country in the middle of winter, which was horrific. Um, and then I, I finally arrived here and I lived in a hotel in uh, Lawndale for like almost a month. And you did? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, so you, I, but you, you already had gotten hired? Yes. So you were living in a hotel, they didn't put you up anywhere? No, <laughs> no. They didn't put you up? No, I had to, uh, you know, I, 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 I had lived in the hotel and I was like, all right, I need to have an apartment by the time the, the academy starts. Right. So fortunately, I think it was like four days before the academy was supposed to start, I found an apartment. Good. And so, you know, it was, uh, it, everything worked out. And then, so how long, how long is police academy? So how long does that take doing, um, doing the police academy? It's six months. Six months. It's a six month um, Training? academy. Yeah. Five days a week. Okay. Um, eight hours a day. And then... You graduate from the academy, okay. and then you go into what's called your probationary period. Okay. And the probationary period is 13 months, okay. uh, where you're, you're um, partnered up with a tenured officer, which is called a P3, and you go out with him for the first seven months, I think it was. And how old were you when you... I was a 31-year-old man. 
31 year old. Did you feel intimidation when you started going on these police calls and things like? No, I, no, I don't think it was t intimidation. I mean, I mean, admittingly, it was a little bit of fear because you know fear. you fear the unknown. You have right. no idea what you're walking into. Yeah, and I started my probation off. Um, it was actually just after September 11th of 2008. Oh yeah. And my very first call, you know, at the time we still had to wear our full class A uniforms, okay. which is a, a sweaty wool you know, suit with a tie and, oh you know, these, these polished, low-top, sort of um, really uncomfortable, they're called Bates, Bates are the brand, okay. but they, I wasn't allowed to wear the boots, I had to wear the shoes. Oh my gosh. And I'm out there, my very first call was a, a barricaded man inside of his apartment, and it was in, um, it was in Watts. I was, oh my God, you know, I was scary. initially, I was right <laughs> out of the gate, I was assigned to the Watts area of LAPD, and, oh um, and it was in the Jordan Downs housing complex, and it was that was just an eye-opening experience for me because, you know, um, we don't have anything of that nature, that that sort of housing, the sprawling housing complexes yeah. in Boston. So that was definitely an eye-opening thing for me. So, talk to us a little bit about about more about like what other calls that you had to to face that were pretty. Not dangerous, but talk to us about some something that you will never forget being in the LAPD that was like, wow, that hit your heart in, in some way. That it may be like a few instances that you can remember. Sure. I mean, there's 14 years is a lot. It's a long you know? time. I mean, it's not as long as I would have liked it to be. I know. But, um, you know, you you have the either the fortune or the misfortune to see so much more than the average person yeah uh, within our jobs and you see a lifetime of pain a lifetime of sorrow but you also see a lot of joy in the job mm -hmm. uh, you know i was a, I, obviously you see you see people who are deceased you see mm -hmm. horrific accidents and i was uh, i was a traffic investigator i was a collision investigator for for 5 years so oh, wow. uh, i still recall a lot of the a lot of the tragedies I saw in that job. Yeah. Um, but one of the greatest joys that I have um, in my investigative career was um, putting people in jail who hurt children. That was the most rewarding part of my job. I, I had the very good fortune to become, uh, I was a case-carrying investigator for the juvenile division. Okay. And my task was to investigate crimes against children okay. where the primary caregiver had uh, had physically or sexually assaulted them and yeah. I'll never forget you know I was given I think it was but it was one of my very first days uh, working the felony crimes mm -hmm. and I was given this one one sheet of paper mm -hmm. report and they said you know figure out what to do with this it's been sitting on this desk for a year and so I took it and I ran with it and what you know, was that what was it it was a it was a baby who was brought into the hospital with uh, just bruises all over the body and oh and the mom was claiming that the baby had been bit by a spider because there was uh, look, there was puncture wounds on the on the oh child and so I took it and I ran with it and I tracked down the doctor I tracked down the photographs I tracked down neighbors and all this other stuff and um, you know I ended up I ended up arresting the mom twice I arrested her once for witness intimidation okay after I had already arrested her for felony child abuse and uh, the short of it is I had her she was sentenced to nine years in prison nine years because uh, for because abusing she, for abusing her child her yeah, while, while on drugs and you know 
seeing that case from start to finish, it, it was incredibly rewarding because there's nothing worse than someone who hurts a child. I know, um, I know, especially when you have children of your own and you know how exactly, innocent they exactly, are. Yeah. Was the baby like two? Was it younger than At the time, it was six months. Six months? Yeah. Yeah. God. So, you know, that is horrible. But working the working the the case investigation stuff, it's really it's it's really what um it's what being a police officer is all about. You know, you yeah. can you can chase the radio all day long right. and go from call to call to call to call. Yeah. And you make just a, a modicum of difference in someone's life. You basically you're a problem solver. You are. But to to go from start to finish with something like that and see the result, it's it's incredibly it's rewarding. Just, it's incredibly rewarding. Um, you know, and then from there, I I was working Skid Row. I, I worked Skid Row starting 2015 or so. Okay. Um, and how was that like? What are some things that you saw? It was bonkers. It was it Skid was, Row. Like I just thinking about like just thinking about that. I think of the worst. Like uh, just a very a lot of drug infested, a lot of uh, it shooting. is. It's a lot of sadness. You know, it's a lot of sadness. So the homeless. Uh, crisis that we that we're facing in the state is it's being perpetually fed by these nonprofit organizations mm -hmm. who aren't looking to solve anything right. they're just looking to continue with their paychecks right you know some of the some of the people who chair these these nonprofits i mean they're making over 200 250,000 dollars a year wow. right for doing what i mean they're not they're not getting people off the streets exactly, they're just, just see it. perpetuating the cycle yeah. And, you know, you see bills uh, being passed through the legislature right now. And thankfully, yeah. um, Anthony Weiner's SB 57, uh, which was a bill that, that wanted to set up essentially safe injection sites within Los Angeles County. Uh, it was just recently vetoed by the governor. Um, so I can appreciate the governor for doing that. Right. You know, I think there were ulterior motives to it. Yes. But uh, that's another story for another day. <laughs> but uh, it, if I can... You know, to answer your question further, you know, yeah. working Skid Row, yeah. I have had some very difficult calls that I've responded to. Um, like what? Give us, give us a little. Well, the one that immediately comes to mind, and I and we were talking about it earlier. Yeah. Um, is that back in 2019, I responded to a call of a suicidal man on a on a bridge. Okay. And you know, I arrived, and sure enough, there was a man standing um, in. The four-level interchange, standing on the the the, the Jersey the barrier there, the ledge, and he was threatening suicide. My gosh. And you know, it was the hardest, it was the hardest call I think I'd ever been on because I was so emotionally involved in it right. that time seemed to stand still, and I became very hyper-focused and making the connection with the gentleman. And after a significant amount of time, you know, the connection that I made. He recognized, and he came down from oh. from the ledge. He um, saved his life. Yeah, yeah, it was incredibly emotional, and um, oh, wow. you know, I remember after after I had put him into the back of my car, I remember I just broke down. Oh my god! You know, because you, you're so invested in it, and I'm even you know, I, every time I talk about it, I feel like I get emotional because yeah. it, it brings up the the memories of of what happened that day. And um, so, yeah. You and know. you just think about what was he struggling so much with mm -hmm. that wanted to make him take his life. Right. And you, for whatever reason, God put you there 
at that inter like you said that intervention that divine intervention right. there was no coincidence that you were the one that answered the call that you were the one that put all your heart and soul to try to save this man's life a stranger that you don't know but you just know death is not the answer yeah you know and to save him wow michael yeah, it was uh, pretty powerful, and um, yeah, you're right, I don't believe in coincidences. Yeah. Um, at least any longer, I don't. And, no. uh, you know, I was put there in that man's life for that reason, to make that connection with him. And, and did you hug him afterwards? I gave him a huge hug, you, you know. I, they, they made a video about it on the LAPD um, Instagram page. It yeah, we'll like, definitely go roll that clip. I think it has like 150,000 views, wow. but it's edited, it's edited down. Yeah. But during my conversation with him i said hey man you know you come down from that ledge i'll give you the biggest bear hug you'll ever have and <laughs> when he stepped down i you know you gave him a hug I, like I your body him, cam showed i it. gave him a uh -huh. huge huge hug and yeah. um you know i squeezed him and i really meant it you know i was really wow. grateful for him to come so down. then where do they take them after you know something like this happens do they do they get arrested do they go take where do you guys take the these, these no people? you know in the video you see that we do have to put handcuffs on them um but it's it's sort okay. of a, it's a policy that right. um, it's for their safety and our own because you have a suicidal person. Right. Um, who's to say they wouldn't try to continue? You don't know what they're capable exactly. of. Exactly. I mean. It. So you know, I mean, policy is there for a reason right. because at some point somebody didn't do it and then they tried <laughs> exactly. to do something. Yeah. So he was he was taken to a uh, a facility. He was taken to the hospital. Okay. Um, and placed on a f what's called a fifty one fifty hold. Yeah. But. Um, you know, I took him there myself and... and Made sure he was yeah, okay. And, yeah, Because you, you, you had a little bond moment with him, you know? Yeah. A little emotional connection. Yeah, I mean, you saved his life. Did he did he look like he was thankful for that? Like, did he, like, was appreciative for what you did? Did he, or did he not show that? No, when we were, you know, again, uh, once I got him off of the bridge and off of the freeway there, I took him over um, to a parking lot and I, and I talked to him in the back of the car and yeah. he was extremely grateful. Oh my gosh, so. wow. So let's talk about just what's happening now with the crime. I mean, you see all the things about defunding the police, about just the crime has just increased so tremendously throughout these last few years. Um, how, how, what now, like, how do we, how do we stop it? I mean, what, what's, I mean, I, I feel like more and more I'm feeling more unsafe because mm -hmm. they're taking they're terminating good police officers like yourself for standing up and fighting against your own body autonomy and just saying, you know what, we're going to take you out. We're going to put other people in who will obey us, who will, will comply. And then, you know, these police officers are kind of tyrannical. I don't know. Like, I mean, what's to say that they, what, what won't they do to the public, they're trying to protect and serve us. I mean, we're not going to find good, kind-hearted <laughs> officers like yourself out there. They're getting rid of all of them. So it's like, what do we do to just stop this? <laughs> well, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, you know, yes, the actions of our government officials mm -hmm. are certainly tyrannical. Yeah. Um, even despotic. You mm -hmm. know. I have never met a bad police officer. I mean, there there are bad police officers. Yeah. Every every single cop that I've worked with over the last fourteen years, mm -hmm. they're there for the for the right reasons. Okay. Um, you know, nobody wants to take your your rights. Nobody mm -hmm. wants to take your civil liberties away as a police officer. But again, you know, individuals like myself yeah. and um, and. and 
a plethora of others, you know, we're independent thinkers, and 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 we're not we're not okay with just going along to get along. Right. And so when officers like myself speak up, you know, it's the department tends to take notice because because not a lot of cops speak out. Right. And you know that's what happened with me. I mean, I was an officer of the year, right? Yeah. I was a five-time winner awesome. of the Mothers Against Drunk, Drunk Driving. I was wow. a highly decorated police officer. Wow. And I chose to speak out because I could not sit back and allow what was happening to my fellow brothers and sisters right. and, and even the city employees. I could not allow that to go unchecked without saying something about it. Yeah. So I felt it was important uh, to take a stand at that point. And by taking a stand, I was hoping that I would be stiffening the spines of others to take a stand with me and stand shoulder to shoulder. How many people do you feel stood by you when you were fighting this through the last year and a half? What do we say that you started really fighting this or has it been two years? Um, it's it's a little over a year, a almost year? a year, maybe a, okay. maybe a year and a half. Yeah. Any of your, your colleagues stand by you when you were fighting this the way you were? Uh, you know... Yes, some did, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the, but I was always hoping for more. I was mm -hmm. always hoping that the 10,000 members of the LAPD, right. the officers that were on the streets, the officers that were in the administrative building, I would always hope and pray that they would realize that we took an oath. You know, we held up our, we all did, we all took the same oath when we became police officers. Right. We all raised our right hand yes. and swore an oath to the Constitution to defend this. To serve and protect. Exactly. We, yes. But we, we took an oath to protect America, mm -hmm, right, mm -hmm. from foreign and domestic enemies. Yes. And right now, I do believe that we are fighting a war against mm. domestic enemies. Yes. And so I chose to be that. I chose to be the good man, mm -hmm. right? I chose to be the savage servant, the, the person that would stand in the gap and take the slings and arrows because something had to be said at that point. <sighs> yeah, and you did. And now look where we are. We're here talking to you because you got terminated mm -hmm. for standing against this unconstitutional mandate that is really sadly taken a lot of people's livelihoods. So what what happened in the tribunal court? Can you talk about that at all or if you can't? Sure, no, I, you know, I, I was one of the only, I hadn't heard of a police officer that had made their, what's called a board of rights. Okay. We're, we're afford, as a police officer, we're afforded certain rights under, it's called POBRA. Okay. And Skelly. And so under POBRA, I was able to, um, determined, I, I was able to state that I wanted my hearing okay. to be open to the public. Okay. And I had never heard of another officer that had opened Ever up a, a board of rights to the public. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I truly felt in my heart, I didn't do anything wrong. No. Right? And I wanted to expose the corruption that, that was obviously going to be very evident throughout my trial. Amen. And I wanted the public to be able to... To, to, to see it. To, to see witness it, it. To recognize it. To request Absolutely. records from it. And so I made my, my Board of Rights public. Mm -hmm. uh, I was sent to a Board of Rights in, on December 6th. Okay. It was only supposed to be a three-day trial, yeah. December 6th, 7th, and 8th. Right. And as it turns out, it turned into a seven-month trial. Wow. I was on trial uh, with the LAPD for seven months. I hadn't been paid since December of last year. Wow. Um, and it was just, 
It was a show trial. It was a kangaroo court. I mean, was um, it just back and forth? That was never. Did, do you feel like they were listening to you, the people that you were talking to, the people that you were trying to state your case? Were they? Did they have compassion or? Uh, not at first. I, you know, I I had um, the I was given a list of names called a slate that I had to choose three three people from. Okay. Uh, that we went back and forth with the department on. And uh-huh. of that slate of nine names, it was whittled down to three. And the three panelists that I had gotten mm-hmm. were, they were really um, argumentative at first. Mm. One was a public defender. And okay. he just he just despised me right off the bat. Oh, my God. And his animosity towards me w- really came out throughout the trial. Mm-hmm. And he would try to catch me, and he would try to make me, you know, like he wanted to catch me in lies and double speak and and all this other stuff. And you know, I held very true to my my Dear initial, beliefs. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I I personally testified on the stand for almost six hours. Now, was there any public people there that can see you? Was there anybody there that in the court that can like public that can be there? People or no? It was just you I had s- I had a few supporters okay, that, that were allowed in, okay. and then I had uh, Anthony Cabasas from Inform with Anthony. Oh um, yeah, he was there. He was there as well. He covered part of my trial. Good. But as it turns out, you know there were some bombshells that were that, that were later discovered that uh, the internal affairs investigator who uh, wrote the report on me right. um, was ordered by the chief of police. Yeah. Uh, or the Internal Affairs Division was ordered by the chief's office not to investigate any claims. So not not one witness, especially me, was ever contacted with regards to why I was relieved of duty. Uh, because I refused to, I'll put this out there, initially I refused to submit a religious religious exemption. Okay. I just, I would not you do would. it. My, my morals would not allow me to bear false witness and submit one because right. I felt it was so un- unconstitutional to begin with right. that I refused to do it. Okay. I wouldn't mask <laughs> and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't take the PCR tests. And yeah. the big thing with the PCR test, and this is one of the reasons I was initially sent home, was that I was on November 3rd, I was called into the captain's office and they said, here's a piece of paper. Yeah. What we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna deduct almost $600 a month from your paycheck oh to God. cover the cost of paying for PCR tests. Oh my so gosh. something that I did not believe in, they wanted to charge me money for. Oh my God. And so I said, I, absolutely not, I refuse to. You know, because Good. I knew very early that what they were asking me was a direct violation of the California Labor Code under yeah. 2802. Yeah. And they couldn't, they couldn't make me pay for something that they suddenly made a condition of my employment. Wow. So I refused to sign it. And that was the reason why they said they sent me home. Wow. And so as it came out in my trial, oh. uh, we had Internal Affairs who was ordered not to investigate anything. We also had um, the captains were advised by the chief's office not to speak to any employee with regards to the vaccines or the mandate so therein lies the problem too how can i give my truly informed consent if nobody is going to speak to us about it um so that was interesting to me and um and then i had actually an individual who came in and testified at my trial who had been uh, witness to a conversation by a supervisor Mm -hmm. Uh, that stated that I was going to be 100% fired and they were going to make an example out of me. 
Wow. So I thought that was really interesting That's because horrible. it seems as though my trial was just a show. Yeah. Uh, they dragged it on. They, it was classic tactics trying to financially bankrupt me, hoping that I'd just quit when it got too financially burdensome. But I refused to. You know, my principles, my morals d would not allow me to quit. Yeah. You know, I wanted them to fire me because I refused to give in and acquiesce to their, their tactics. Now, what, the, your, the chief that you worked with, like the, the one that was above you, like, did you guys have a good relationship? Before my captain or my chief? Or, I don't know. Captain, chief, like... Well, the chief, the chief is like the top of the food Okay, so... The, so and the, above me is a captain. Captain. Okay, so how was your relationship with the captain before all this happened? Like, did he like you as a police officer? Did he really... Uh, we had a mutual respect for each other. We had known each other for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And I used, to, I used to work for him when he was a sergeant, when he was a lieutenant. And then he became my captain. Yeah. And, um, you know, I... I have to say, I, I don't really hold any ill will towards the captains. Yeah. Um, what really saddens me and disappoints me is that these, these weak, the weakness of everyone. Yeah. The weakness, because they're doing this, and I, and I do understand it to a certain point, they're right. doing this for a paycheck. Yeah. Right. That's because what I was it's, say. it's terrifying to step out on that ledge. Right. right. And know that what's coming, you have no idea what's going what's gonna to happen next. Right. And, you know, the financial security is, it's so big. It is. But, you know, I definitely weighed the pros and the cons. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, wow. I have to do this because yeah. no one else is stepping up oh, to do God. it. And it has oh. to be said. And so I sacrificed my entire livelihood over my principles. Amen. And, you know, sometimes it's easier to, um, to fight for those principles than it is to truly stand up for them. Yes. But I, I've really done both. And he's a, he's a prime example of just that. Like we're talking about someone who never backed down and never caved in knowing that the consequences were maybe termination to his position. And that's exactly what happened. So let's, uh, let's talk about how busy you have been lately. Just kind of uh, yeah. let's touch on that really quick. What is Michael McMahon doing now? Well, um, as a result of, you know, yeah. the struggle that I've been going through and, and the, uh, the sort of Hardship. political and medical activism that I've been a, a part of for the better, for almost a year now. Yeah. Um, coming up on the one year anniversary of it. Yeah. I, I've had the good grace to be able to speak in front of tens of thousands of people and it's been an incredibly humbling honor. Yes. And, uh, you know, I you were was, at Defeat the Mandates? I was one of the VIP speakers at Defeat the Mandates, yeah. um, which was incredible. I got to meet so many of my heroes. That's awesome. You know, uh, so, tell us a few. Who did you get to meet? Del, well, Del Big... Yeah, I, you know, I had, I had dinner with Del Bigtree and Big Robert Tree, Kennedy. Yeah. <laughs> Oddly enough, one of my favorite, one of my favorite uh, people growing up was um, Dickie Barrett from the Money Money Boston. Dickie Barrett. I don't know who he is. Sorry. Dickie Barrett was, uh, he was the lead singer of the Money Money Boston. Okay. But he's a big advocate for medical freedom. Awesome. And I actually hung out with him the entire you weekend. Did? It, was, it was like, it was like a, a childhood so dream come cool. true. Um, That's awesome. But you know, like Lee Merritt and, yeah. and, um, and, you know, Judy Mikovits, which of I'm, a, which I'm yes. a, a huge fan of, but um, one, of the, one of the most impactful ones that I met that weekend was was Mickey Willis okay. and Mickey Willis is a um, a documentary filmmaker okay uh, who put out a movie called Plandemic okay I saw on. that 
and pandemic had a, had really opened up my eyes to to the evil mm-hmm. that was surrounding the the covid um the covid virus yeah and so when i got to meet him i i pretty much broke down and i was Aww. i was telling him how grateful i was and how yeah. much you know his films meant to me because it introduced me to you. so many yeah. people and uh Absolutely. you know i've been really fortunate to to become awesome. friends with a lot of these That's people so awesome, Michael. and it's um it's really again it's i mm. use this word a lot it's really humbling yeah yeah that's awesome, dude. So, um, you know, as I was as I was speaking across Southern California, um, in these churches and these rallies and and making appearances uh, down in like San Diego and other places. So wait, let me interrupt you. You were making these appearances because of what had happened to you from the LAPD, not yet because you were running for something. Yet. No, yeah, this was just yeah, as, as speaking engagements, the sort of activism thing, right? You know? Okay, but I had I I'd had the opportunity to 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 speak to all these people and. Mm-hmm. While giving my speeches, I would always find myself calling on on the Californ- the people of California, right. and more specifically, I was calling out the men of California. Yeah. I was really questioning where are the men of this state, where are the men of this country, where are the patriots? Yeah, and I was begging for people to stand up and mm. and, and speak out, and you know, stand up for our children. Mm-hmm. And when nobody was. Mm. Um, it was a very eye-opening experience again, but I decided that, well, if if no one's gonna if no one's gonna stand up and change our our, our state, right? Because as Americans, I firmly believe that if your government is not serving you, it is your right as an American citizen to change the government. Mm, and good. so I decided to pull papers to run for the California State Assembly. Wow. Um, you know, to try to make a change, to try to affect a change, and yes, and. You know, I, I, I always use the line, you know, I, I took a stand mm-hmm. so that I can leave a country for where my children will still be able to. to stand, yes. And that's important to me it because is. once we lose these rights as American citizens, we're ne- we never get them back. Mm-hmm. Case, so case in point, we still take our shoes off at the airport 21 years later, right? Yeah. <laughs> our kids will never know the, the, the pure joy of going to the airport and seeing planes take off and land and not have to go through a screening process and x-rays and all this other yeah. stuff. And so, you know, for me, the medical freedom aspect of it is so important to me. Absolutely. Because not only are they trying to really just inject our children with more and more and more and more, right. but they're stripping, they're stripping our liberties away. They're mm-hmm. stripping our parental rights away. They are. Which I am a huge advocate against. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to step into the fray yeah. and I had to say, you know what? Here I am. This is my calling. This is my calling. This is what so, I'm going to do now. You know, where one door closes, another, another door opens. opens. So you've fully been invested in this campaign. So how how has it been going for you in these these last few month, what, months? No. Yeah, last few months. months so yeah. You know, I pulled papers in very early March. Um, I think I pulled papers with like four days left to register. Wow. So I gathered my signatures, and oddly as it is. Um, after I gathered my signatures and I submitted them, I had two dozen stricken off my, my, my signature list. Yeah. And that was because the, of the redrawing of the districts throughout California. Oh, okay. I ended up losing half of, of, half of my city signature. that I live in. Oh, my gosh. And so, consequently, I lost two dozen signatures. But that was, that was not deterring to me because I felt that if, it's, if it was important enough for me to run in the first place, mm-hmm. running later on as a writing candidate 
is just as important. It is. And so I again, I gathered all my signatures and I ran as a, a writing candidate for the June primary. Yeah. And uh, how do you feel that went the June primaries? What did what did? What well, for me, it was it was amazing because I, in the short amount of time that I was campaigning, I was able to get two thousand five hundred and eighty write-in votes throughout That's awesome throughout the the this assembly time. district, mm -hmm. and that put me as the as the top write-in vote getter right for the for uh, for any assembly position. That's and awesome. And I was I was second only to uh, Christina Irwin. Okay. in the state so i was the number two write-in vote getter great. in, in the entire amazing. state and that's, that's again that's huge humbling that's, that's very humbling it's very humbling but very awesome yeah and so. um we want him to win so um i'm going to talk to him more um on a podcast with meet the candidates and we're going to go into it a little bit deeper but thank you so much michael for allowing us into your home to just have a heart to heart and talk about what you've been going through and um I really appreciate you and your service and everything that you have done. And yeah, if you have anything else to say, um, go ahead and say it. Uh, well, I appreciate it. I'm glad we could finally work something out. But you know, I just to just to finish up, I'm, yeah. I'm really excited about what lies ahead for us as as a state. We are yeah. a really. It's a great candidate class that's running to save our state. We have patriots all over California who are stepping up and doing their civic duty as citizens. And come the November 8th uh, general election, you'll find me on the ballot. Yes. Um, you know, I also, in the meantime, I have also since uh, started a coalition of like-minded yeah, uh, candidates that. as well uh, that I'm calling the Heroes Coalition. Mm -hmm. It's made up of myself, Vincent Sai, who is running for the Senate 22 seat, mm -hmm. uh, he is an active um, uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff. Okay. And then we have Burton Brink, mm -hmm. who was a 30-year uh, Los Angeles wow. County Sheriff. He who retired after 30 years, but okay. he's running in the Assembly 49. See, so the three of us great. together in this coalition that we call the Heroes Coalition. I love that. Because we have the same ideals the same mindset, and mm -hmm. we're all fighting together. Mm -hmm. And that's what I want to do when I get up to Sacramento is is form these coalitions and get engaged and get work done. Yes. Right. Well, there's so much work to be done up there, but I'm, I'm genuinely excited about the opportunity to get up there and affect some sort of change. And he so, will. And you he know. will. He'll do it. But we need, we need your help to get him out there. So please make sure you vote this general election. It's so important to vote. Don't think your vote doesn't matter because you hear that a lot, right, Michael? Yes, Speak we have on been. That, that uh, there is a general sense of apathy within our state because it has been controlled by the Democrats for the last 60 years. Right. But I'm looking at this November election as, you know, Californians need to come out and vote their values. Yeah. If, any, if it's taught us anything over the last almost three years, it's that the Democrat policies are a failed policy. Right. We have a spike in crimes. We have spike in homelessness. We have spike in drugs. We have, uh, you know, so many of the bad bills being pushed on us by these Democrats and their weak policies and their awful policies yeah. that... You know, 2022 is one of the most important elections in the history of this country, and it I firmly sure believe is. that I've because where California goes, so does the state. Mm -hmm. And if you uh, actually where California goes, so does so the, the country. country. Yeah. And if you notice in Washington D.C., all of the people in Washington who are in positions of power are from California. Yeah. Right. So the pol the policies and the laws enacted in California are are it's an easy it's an easy plane ride over to, yeah. to Washington. 
Yeah, so that's why it's important to vote. So please remember his name, Michael McMahon. Mm -hmm. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. This is Gabby, Fearless and Free. And that's all we got. See you on the next one. Bye.